0: To another edition of the-
1: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Grab as much water as you can carry because it's a long walk through Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minute 70, which begins with Tubba finding himself volunteered to go with Max and Anna Goanna. And it ends with Max and the children on a trail that's gone cold. Slogging out here to spend the week with us are Gary Roby and Victoria Cope from the Harry Potter Minute podcast.
0: Hi guys. Hello.
1: Hello! It's good to be here. It's good to have you both here with us once again for a whole week this time.
0: Absolutely! I had such a blast talking to you guys last time. And like I said last time, like, I had watched that movie like just in preparation for the show, and it was the same for this one, and it's just fun to like... Like you guys are introducing me to the Mad Max franchise and I'm enjoying it.
1: (laughs) We might as well get right into the minute since you both are old hat at this sort of thing. We start off today's minute with the continued shot that we left off last Friday with of panning through the group of these waiting ones, and we settle in on Tuba Tintai. Tinti, Tentai. I don't think it matters at this point, because from here on out, we're more or less just going to call him Tuba, but he is the last person in the group. There is no one to look at beside him, and so it has fallen on his shoulders to accompany Max and Anna as they go out into the desert.
2: We have wondered before about the source of the names of the waiting ones. Mm -hmm. It's obvious... For the most part, their parents did not give them these names. No. I don't I'll think that. So. How did Tubba get his name? <laughs> because if his fellow children gave him that name, then that's kind of mean. Aww. Except how would they know what Tubba means? Like that's a modern society bullying type term to call someone Tubby.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of messed up. A little bit. Aw, poor Tubba.
1: It reminds me of Hook. Because there is that one character who I think they call him a thud butt. Aww. And he's a bit more on the hefty side.
2: Mm-hmm. Is he the one that had the marbles that belong to, not Screw Loose Toodles?
1: Yes, he is the one that was holding on to Toodles' marbles. The one that was, I guess, keeping them safe.
3: I have not watched Hook in so long. My mom is not a big movie person, but for the longest time, my mom was obsessed with that movie. <laughs> and watched it... All the time. And I mean, like, back to back to back to back. That's crazy. Several days in a row. Maybe several days, like, she wouldn't watch it and then, like, go back to watching it again. I have seen that movie so many times. It's ridiculous.
2: Oh, my God. Because she
3: was just like obsessed with this movie and she'll still watch it
2: you and her should do a podcast together oh god except no. not because we're already doing it <laughs>
3: my mom's a bigger grump than i am so that would not work out <laughs> i think it'd be fun to listen to you and your mom my mom would not she no would i know she like, like, no. yeah. she's worse than i am about like about stuff so no but she was that one in armageddon oh just over and over and over again like Like a broken record.
2: Okay, I can see that on Armageddon. I like Armageddon. I could watch it a lot more than I ever have. Mm. The
1: question with Armageddon, though, is was it because of Aerosmith, was it because of Bruce Willis, or was it because of Ben Affleck?
3: All of the above.
2: (laughs) It was a little bit Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. I find them both attractive. I agree with you there. Yeah. Mostly it's because I like it when the earth gets destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> or almost destroyed. Oh, man. <laughs> I like apocalyptic movies. There you go. Just like I like post-apocalyptic movies. It fits. It's on brand, right? They're all good. Yeah.
3: <laughs> not all good, but for the most part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Speaking of things getting destroyed, I feel like we've talked a lot about the waiting ones in weeks past and- it's here in this instance where we're just kind of looking at Tubba standing there looking perplexed. You can get a really good angle on the different types of spears that he's holding. Mm. Looking at that, I made a guess that the Waiting Ones are mostly a spear-based hunting society. You can definitely tell that they've adapted other Aborigine hunting styles because Anna Goana specifically has a boomerang. Mm. And it looks to me like they're holding not so much arrows, but more like long darts that they probably use in conjunction with some sort of spear throwing tool. Mm. Um, I think the Aztecs called them an atlatl and the Aborigines call them a Woomera.
2: From my limited understanding of that particular style of weapon, it's incredibly deadly. A skilled practitioner can be extremely accurate Mm -hmm. with those and there's a lot of power behind that throw and it's a very effective hunting weapon
0: it's really intimidating i actually really i love this group the waiting ones i didn't know that was what well actually that makes sense that's what they're called i didn't know it's
3: it's very lost boys not or not like uh lord of the flies
0: okay Mm -hmm. i see that
3: little kid society
0: I, like, I I mentioned, like, maybe off mic earlier, but um, watching this movie for the first time uh, in preparation for this, and I really, really like just, like, their telling of the myths of, like, what happened and all of that. I think that's really cool.
1: I like the weird parallel that... The waiting ones are children in a weird situation, and the Harry Potter story is all about kids that are in weird situations.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And it's a sort of strange example of how one group have no teachers, and one group has Mm -hmm. a lot of teachers, and they handle...
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Those
1: separate worlds.
0: (laughs) We were talking on the Listener's Army like not that long ago about Australian wizards, and I'm still all for this idea.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it only makes sense. And uh, we have a character, Screwloose, in this group who very much separates himself from everybody else. And he only shows up in this week very, very little tiny bit. And we'll definitely mention him when we get to him, but he doesn't show up till Friday. Nice. And he could definitely be seen as... Someone different enough to be a wizard, if you want to look at it that way. And I'm an ardent fan of Harry Potter, as are the two of you, so Mm -hmm. I do want to look at it that way.
1: Absolutely. I looked up a bunch of information about the Woomera. Would you all like to hear some of it?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Let me put on my reading voice. (laughs) The Woomera comes from the Darug language of the Eora people of the Sydney Basin. The Woomera is typically a two to three feet or 61 to 91 centimeter long tool. One end is three inches wide and possesses a hollow Curved cross section, not unlike an airfoil, while the other is more pointed and has a hook. The Woomera was traditionally decorated with incised or painted designs that indicated belonging to a particular linguistic group, and it may be returned to if found abandoned. Very early example of putting your name on things. Nice. Very handy. <laughs>
0: If lost, please turn in.
1: Records show that the implement began to be used about 5,000 years ago, and it is still being used today in some remote areas of Australia. Some Woomeras, especially those used in the central and western Australian deserts, were multipurpose tools, often shaped like long, narrow bowls. Many Woomeras had a sharp stone cutting edge attached to the end of the handle with black gung from the Triodia tree. Mm. This sharp tool had many uses, such as cutting up game or other food and wood. It is supposed that the Woomera could be used as a shield or protection against spears and boomerangs. The Woomera is held in one hand, while the other hand places the butt of the spear in the Woomera's hook. The hollow, curved shape facilitates this alignment without looking. The Woomera doubles the length of the thrower's arm, greatly increasing the velocity of the spear. Correcting for the game animal's lateral dodging is accompanied by tilting the wing-shaped Woomera during the throw... For last-second corrections, the kinetic energy of a spear launched from a Woomera has been calculated at four times that of an arrow launched from a compound bow.
2: Wow, that's cool. Wow, four times the speed? hmm That's impressive. That is very impressive.
1: And considering that both Tubba and Anna have quivers of short spears slash arrows, it makes sense that they would use a Woomera because I don't think I've ever seen a bow in all the time that we've been hanging out with the Waiting Ones.
0: Hmm, I can't think of any.
1: What's interesting about Tubba's weapons specifically, one spear stands out to me and it looks like it has a head fashioned from salvaged metal Mm -hmm. from the plane wreck. It's been shaped into uh, more or less a bowie knife shape and it's got some really nasty serrations on there. So there's an implication that they have been taking metal from... The plane and fashioning it into tools, which sounds like a good idea to me.
0: Right, That's very smart. resourceful kids. <laughs> That's smart,
1: right? Well, they got it from their forebears. They're applying the knowledge that they were given before these adults just up and left them.
2: That's so crazy to me. I've been wondering for a while if before the adults left, they gave the kids a crash course in everything. I feel
1: like every day is a crash course in something. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You're not wrong. <laughs> right. No. <laughs> but did they make a concerted effort to train the children how to hunt and how to prep an animal for eating and how to tell if that meat was safe to eat and what plants and berries and whatnot were safe to eat and how to birth babies? You would think that'd be essential, right? Especially when
0: they're like out in the desert like this.
2: Yeah, I don't know. There's a certain amount of they're going to figure stuff out on their own. And even though they're children, they're forced to survive. Yeah. They're going to figure things out. They're going to make do with what they have. But some things do seem like they really came from people who knew it before them. Yeah, The adults that just had life experience and Mm. and knew how to, to do things and knew how to manage better than kids anyways. That they pass that knowledge on.
0: <laughs> Do we know how long these kids have been alone for?
2: We're not really sure. It's been a little more than 15 years since the nuclear apocalypse. Okay. Things weren't great before that, but 15 or so years since the bombs fell. Yeah. Interesting. We've never really put a number on it, but my stab in the dark would be 10 years. Wow. That they've been in the crack in the earth. Like 10 years since the plane crashed. Mm. Okay. At least.
1: Or at least 10 years since the Great Leaving, mm. where most of the adults left, and then there were smaller leavings along the way. Every time we talk about the raising of these children, I always go back to Whitney Houston. Mm. <laughs> these people in the crack in the earth, they believed that the children were their future, and they taught them well and let them lead the way. <laughs> Showed them all the beauty that they possess inside, and gave them a sense of pride to make it easier.
3: <laughs> That's pretty great.
2: And then Max comes Bravo. in and does the exact opposite. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> he is the adult and he takes charge and he tries to control them and well, is like, no, I know better than you. You have to do what I say. And when you go ahead and do your own thing anyways, I'm the one that's going to lead the charge to drag you back here.
1: Well, you know, the world can be a lonely place to be. And so they need to learn to depend on themselves. They probably decided a long time ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. And If they fail, if they succeed, at least they'll live as they believe. No matter what they take away from them, they can't take away their dignity.
2: See, you're making the <laughs> argument for me that I was getting a little ardent about on Friday. I was getting a little upset about Max taking away their free agency, their ability to make their own decisions and make their own way in the world. Was that Friday? It was sometime last week. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I remember that because you were very clearly on the side of let them walk out into the desert and I'm saying, but they're being told that it's dangerous. <laughs> Basically, I... I'm not the good character in a Harry Potter story. Aww. I would be the person saying, hey, let's not go into the dark forest. Or hey, let's leave the three-headed dog alone.
2: Can we panic now? <laughs> so you're playing the role of Max, who is huffing and puffing and stomping his way out into the desert. I
1: would like to consider myself more of a Neville.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. You're much better natured than Max or... The trio, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, for that matter.
1: (laughs) I'm the person that would get frozen in the middle of the common room and then just left.
2: Aww. Aww. Neville comes
0: into his own. Right. Eventually, but (laughs)
1: what about for the rest of that night? What if he was going to the bathroom and then he heard- okay we are getting off on a tangent this is a thing now
0: they could have been there like we don't know how long he was there before someone unpetrified no, okay. him he the just... kids went into the they went into the chamber no they went under the trapdoor and then they didn't return to the common room for who knows how long so like what exactly if, well,
3: he just said what if he was going to the bathroom and he didn't get to go and well, he's just laying there
1: yeah if Neville was getting up in the middle of the night, heard them leaving, and was like, oh, hey, on my way to the bathroom, I'm going to do a good thing and stop these people from getting (laughs) our points taken away. Then they petrify him, and he's sitting there on the floor, completely petrified, still has to go to the bathroom. Talk about an embarrassing situation. It's embarrassing enough getting petrified in the middle of the common room. But then, I mean, hopefully he can hold it.
2: Aw. Nah, there's a point where the embarrassment plateaus. And it's just like, it's already terrible.
0: It's already terrible. Right,
2: right. So he may be a little bit more embarrassed because he wet himself. But there is a relief there from, like, not holding it anymore. Okay, Right, or he can lay there being physically miserable and in pain and uncomfortable. Or he can just wet himself and then let himself fall asleep. <laughs>
3: just deal with that in the...
2: Do with that in the morning when someone.
3: I feel that since Neville is like frozen, he
2: can't like (gasps) holding it. Takes some the muscles, but doesn't. Okay, this is not able.
0: (laughs) Petrificus Totalis. We're just gonna keep talking about this. I I think. (laughs) I think that. I think that it like contracts all those muscles, so maybe it's actually easier to hold it. Like he's all tense and his
3: body is like rigid together. I just feel like it's a lower level of petrification, and therefore he
2: can't mm. clamp. Have to go more on a tangent because <laughs> why the heck not? Have you ever thought about how Neville's petrification totalitation mm. mirrors that when it happens to Harry in uh, Book Six?
1: That sounds right.
2: Just like Harry. And Neville mirror each other in almost everything. They both get petrified in an embarrassing situation. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. That has never occurred to me before and I'm a little bit blown away uh, by it.
1: I feel really good knowing that Neville doesn't get kicked in the I face. I know, at by least Barry at least, at least they Hermione. didn't stomp
0: on his face. <laughs> Exactly. It's true. (laughs) true. He just wet his pants. Cover him with the invisibility cloak and no one will find him. (laughs) (laughs) Until they trip over him the next morning, I guess.
1: (laughs) Enough of talking about Harry Potter or the stuff from last week. (laughs) Okay. We're back talking about the minute because this whole tangent started off with how did these kids know to do everything?
2: (laughs) Right. Right. It's magic. It was all my fault. Is that what you're saying?
1: I don't know. At this point, (laughs) it's really hard to tell. (laughs) But what's not hard to tell is the stuff that I dug up about James Wingrove, who is the actor who plays Tupitin Oh, Like most of the children actors in this movie, he has an abysmally not helpful IMDB page. (laughs) It only features a handful of the things that he's done. But what's interesting about James Wingrove is that in his top four, are two projects that he worked on where he was the composer. Like, he only acted in four things. Ginger Megs in 1982, Bush Christmas in 83, Beyond Thunderdome in 85, and then Les Patterson Saves the World in 87. But right around 1990, he was the composer of original music used in Quantum, A Question of Survival, which is a TV documentary, in 1990. Okay. And then he was the composer for a 2011 short called Sacrament and a... 2013 feature called Silent Eyes. Mm. So he went from acting to composing.
2: Good for him. You mentioned a movie called Bush Christmas. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a second.
1: I'm assuming it's a Christmas movie set in the bush
2: of Australia. Hey, uh, Mark Spain. I know that name. Who's Mark Spain? He was in that movie. Oh, it's called Bush Christmas. There's no picture of him. Nicole Kidman's in it. Oh, do we need to watch this movie?
1: <laughs> well, Mark Spain played Mr. Skyfish. That's where you recognize the name from.
2: Excellent. I feel that we might want to put this on our hiatus list because we have hiatus stuff coming out over Christmas, right?
1: I believe so. So it is a 1983 not rated family drama. <laughs> about an hour and a half long. <clears throat> In the Australian outback, a family struggles to keep its farm from foreclosure. Their only hope is that their horse prince will win money in a new year's eve race
0: interesting
1: but then prince is stolen and shenanigans ensue the poster
0: says the much-loved australian story of an outback family and a christmas adventure that they would never forget
2: i officially (laughs) nominate this movie to be on our hiatus list
1: all right i'll put it on the list
2: nice are you gonna do it right now
1: i am doing it right now
2: okay great
0: (laughs) the wonders of imdb Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm
2: (laughs)
1: so i wasn't able to find a ton of information about james on imdb and so i did what i do i go to google and i start searching around and i was talking to julia off mic about the idea of facebook stalking and yes i did track him down oh i almost sent him a friend request but then i remembered oh wait he doesn't know me (laughs) (laughs)
0: like who's this guy
1: But I did learn that he works for Roadshow, which is part of the Village Roadshow Pictures family.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So he's still working in the business.
0: Good for him. I was thinking about this while I was watching this movie yesterday that, like, a lot of times when you see kids that are in movies, like, acting in movies, typically, like, they only have, like, two or three credits and then they just kind of go on to do their own thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's always interesting to see, like, the kids that stay in the business, even though, like, it might not have necessarily been, like, this is what I'm going to do with my life when they started, right? Like, I'm blown away consistently, I just to tie it back to Harry Potter a million times, like, (laughs) the fact that a lot of the kids that were... For the first movie Like lasted through all seven And then have gone on To do like TV shows And and, Like award winning Other projects It's amazing to me Mm -hmm. So it's cool to see That like this kid From From Mad Max Like is still Working in In the movie business Yeah
1: (laughs) Getting back into the movie proper from the actor, talking about Tubba once again, sometime, I think it was last week, I think it was the week before when they were standing up on the section of the plane, I posited that Tubba is Slake's number two hunter. Mm. Slake is first tracker. I'm pretty sure Tubba is the number two tracker.
2: Did you read the storybook for this minute.
1: The storybook actually does not talk a lot about the selection process. It's pretty much just, over here was Tuba. He was picked to go with them.
2: Okay. I have a question in my notes. Why they picked Tuba? Is it because... He was one of the best, and he would be a good tracker for the rescue team and bring the leaving ones back? Or was he because he was rubbish, and the group of rescuers are going to die anyways, and the group of leavers out in the desert are going to die anyways, and Slake has absolutely no faith in this mission? Aww. Wow. I don't like that. That's my question. And uh, I usually read the novelization of the screenplay before prepping the minute. Mm. Well, I forgot. And so I was just reading it a few minutes ago. And let me... C- hold up. Let me cut back to it.
1: This might be very revealing
2: for me. Ooh. This does include swearing. But, you know, we're just going to go with it. Because it's Anna, and Anna has a mouth mm-hmm. on her. So this is where it talks about Tubba being selected. She looked up to find Tubba Tinte, the fat kid who was always last in line, when Slake and the hunters took the trail, she'd always thought he was a chicken. Sh- she raised her eyebrows in surprise. Tubba shrugged resignedly, half smiling, and picked up another water bag. So first of all, he volunteered. And second of all, I think it was him because he wasn't that good and they were willing to get rid of him.
1: Wow, that completely destroys everything I thought I believed about Tubba.
2: Aww.
1: So he was just the duncey one. <laughs>
0: Ah! Oh, that's sad.
1: (laughs) I'm genuinely disappointed, but it also makes a lot of sense that Slake would, instead of sending his chief lieutenant to make sure that they're able to effectively track the people who left, he's sending the pudgy one, who's least effective, just to get him out of the way.
2: It really speaks to Slake's opinion of this whole thing. And a few minutes ago, when he and Savannah were arguing and... Slake was getting quite angry and aggressive about this whole thing. He is all in on there's nothing beyond the nothing. If you go out there, you will die. This is home now. We have to be happy with it. Mm. And there is absolutely no deviation from that plan. And when somebody did deviate from that plan... He has absolutely no faith in them either succeeding or coming back alive or anything. Mm. He's pretty much written them off. That's sad.
1: Oh, that's rough.
2: Yeah, that really bummed me out. These kids are ruthless. Well, you kind of have, have to, to be.
1: be in the wasteland. <laughs> you know,
2: absolutely. But Tubba is gonna prove himself useful this week. It's kind of minor. You have to be watching and noticing things. To see his usefulness, but it's there. Mm. <laughs> Which I think we're gonna see it on Wednesday. Okay. Well, have to point it out.
1: Well, as for today, we're still within the first 10 seconds of the minute. believe it or not. But the next thing we see after Tuba is I guess selected by the group to go with Max and Anna, but the next shot is Max and Anna picking up all of their water. And of course the main focus of the shot is Max, Anna, and Tuba picking up the flasks and things but just past the pile you can see the little blonde kid, Eddie who is trying to pick things up and the other members of this small leaving group take the water from Eddie and leave him standing there very disappointed that he didn't get to pick any thing up himself, because he was the first one to come forward when Anna mentioned that they needed a hunter. I mentioned that back on Friday. Mm -hmm. Anna said, we need a hunter. Eddie pushed through the group and started pawing through the water, and now they're getting left behind, and Eddie has this little disappointed look on their face.
2: It occurs to me that we've seen, and it's been in the novelization expressly described, that Eddie really, really likes Co-Pilot.
1: The monkey. The monkey.
2: Sally Ann slash copilot. pilot And it's mentioned extremely briefly. You almost miss the line, but the group that left took the monkey with them. So I'm wondering if that's why Eddie wants to go so badly. He just wants to hang out with the monkey. He wants mm. to save the monkey. That's cute.
1: So after Max and Anna have picked up their water, Max just makes a beeline for the desert. He doesn't hang around he doesn't have any departing speeches and he actually reminds me a bit of the Max that we saw back in Road Warrior the no nonsense no flowery language very little language to speak of at all he's just got his stuff and he's going to go complete this objective and i think the main difference between that Max and this Max is the Max in Road Warrior made a very specific deal before he did anything for anyone else mm. in this instance it's more of a freebie
2: he likes these kids i agree i think he- it's reluctant. Like, he kind of stomps off. He's got a bit of attitude on his face. Yeah. He's not doing this pleasantly, but he's doing it. And you're right. He's doing it without any deal or promised reward at the end. He's doing it because these are kids and it's the right thing to do to try and save their lives.
3: Max has a good heart. Every once in a while when you're stuck in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, you need a a little reminder of your humanity. Yeah. You know, and these kids, like, seeing that like sure like they're all rough and tumbled now but they're still they're still kids. kids yeah and as an adult like you kind of just go into that mode of just like all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's going to do this
0: thing he's going to try to help you mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think the good example of These children trying to be tough in the face of the wasteland. As these folks are walking away, we get a really close-up shot on Slake. And he's got this sort of squinty expression on his face. And you can tell that he's putting up a strong front. But if you look into his eyes, you can tell that he's not really sure about this venture. And he probably doesn't trust it as far as he can throw it. He just doesn't like the idea of more people leaving.
2: I think so. And he's kind of sided with Max. But I don't think it's really because of Max. I don't think he feels any loyalty towards Max. No. Or any, well, really any positive feelings at all. It's much more a practicality issue. He Mm. believes... Max, when Max said that there's nothing out there, and if you do make it through, you're only going to make it to Bartertown, and they're going to eat you alive anyways. Like, that's the extent of Slake's feelings towards Max, is he believes that he's telling the truth. Yeah,
0: but that doesn't extend beyond into, like, Max being capable of doing any of this either.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure he trusts him to be the one leading even more children out into the desert. Yeah, they've
0: lost people already. Like, it's with reluctance that they're sending more, even if it is
1: to help, you know, the first that leave. And Tubba is certainly reluctant about this course of action. He's the one that hesitates and looks back. Yeah. Makes leaving all the harder. And I really feel for Tubba because all last week we were in this huge argument about how. There's nothing, and the sand is going to swallow you up, and then civilization's going to swallow you up, and it's an awful suicide mission. And Tubba suddenly finds himself on that suicide mission that he probably had no plans on joining of his own free will. Mm. It was just thrust upon him, and he's like, oh, well, I guess I'm marching out into the nothing now. Bye, guys. it's
2: rough. <laughs> I recently used a quote that seems apropos for this minute. Some people achieve greatness by choice and some have it thrust upon them or something like that. I'm paraphrasing.
1: It's from Twelfth Night, Act 2, Scenes 5, page 7. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them.
2: Yes. Yes. So Anna Goanna is choosing to go out there and do this thing. And Tubba was sent. Whether he liked it or not, he was sent out there. And then we have Eddie, who has to go out of his way to get to do this, which we actually won't see until Wednesday's minute. I was mm.
1: say, spoiler alert. <gasps> spoiler alert. <laughs>
2: you monster.
1: Once we see Max, Anna, and Tubba walking away, we spend the last quarter of this minute just panning across and facing Waiting between different shots of the waiting ones, and they're just standing there looking out into the nothing. Really hammers home just how homely of a group this is.
2: Well, when you're covered in clay, it's, you know, you're covered in mud.
1: There's not much to be said for some children actors, but I feel like all the attractive people left.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, I mean, all the named people left, so (laughs)
1: it's
2: like it's very attractive.
1: Yeah, but I'm looking at some of these other kids and they've all got weird hairdos, but there's at least one kid with a half-grown mustache and they all kind of have these dumb looks on their faces. And it's like, yeah, we're taking all the smart people
2: away. (laughs) (laughs) Since you bring up the topic of facial hair, I mean, these kids are young enough that they're still in the phase where they may or may not be growing facial hair. But Slyke does seem old enough that he would have to work to keep that baby smooth face he's got going on. Uh, he,
1: he might have been born without the ability to grow facial hair. That does exist.
2: Absolutely. Those poor,
3: poor guys. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how hard they try. <laughs> they just can't do it. They get like little wisps and those like dirts on their face. Those cute little baby faced.
1: So the last thing we see this minute is a fade to Max, Anna, and Tuba. They are walking along. There aren't really any tracks ahead of them. They seem to have lost the trail, but they're walking up a dune. And so at the tail end of this minute, it's just them walking. It's more or less five seconds, and then the minute cuts off. So what we're going to do, we're going to put a pin in this. We're going to come back on Wednesday. We're going to talk about, well, more sand, (laughs) if you want to be honest about it. But...
2: (laughs) I hate sand.
1: That's just the way of the desert
2: okay, Anakin. It's everywhere.
1: It's coarse, irritating, <laughs> awful. So You know what's not awful, though? The Harry Potter Minute. <gasps> Gary, would you like to tell the people who are listening more about your pet project? Yeah,
0: absolutely. We are doing the same thing that you guys are doing over here. We're going through the Harry Potter movies one minute at a time. So everyone can come find that at duelinggenre.com or iTunes or wherever you podcast. It's just Harry Potter Minute. I don't know if season three is going to start before the end of the year or not. I haven't like picked a date yet, but the last two seasons started in November. So keep an eye out, everybody.
1: Okay, that sounds like a good plan. Yeah. I always keep an eye out for it. I've got so many movie by minute podcasts that pop up in my own podcatcher that it's hard to keep track of when they start and when they end sometimes I know so there, <laughs>
0: there are shows that I was that I was trying to desperately listen to on a on a on a regular basis, and now I've fallen so far behind where it's like, oh, that season just wrapped up last week and I didn't even start it yet. oh no
1: <laughs> it's a daunting task there's there's, there's a lot of us
0: now there's so by the time them. this airs, there's probably over a hundred different shows. <laughs>
1: Probably, but we'll worry about that when we come to it. In the meantime, when we come back on Wednesday, Max and company, they're going to have someone join their party. Eddie's going to show up out of seemingly nowhere. Mm. Aside from that, they'll also pick up the trail that they seem to have lost. So there is plenty of good things on the horizon. So be sure to come back on Wednesday. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
2: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one time donation by clicking the donate
3: link.
2: Thank you for joining us for Minute 70 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time.
3: Everybody.